All right, well, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this last week was the first full week where it really felt like spring has arrived uh, almost every day. Spring is kind of not giving its best showing today and, or yesterday, but most of this week it really felt like, okay, we're, we're here. You know, the grass is turning green, uh, everything's coming to life, and if you're anything like me, you've just wanted to be outside enjoying it. Maybe you haven't been able to, but that's what you want. And uh, maybe you've been feeling a little bit more appreciation lately for the beauty of nature. Well, because of that, and because uh, this Monday was Earth Day, I felt inspired to talk this week about what's sometimes called creation care. Uh, basically, the subject of protecting and preserving our environment. Now, you might be thinking, is this, you know, is this really a subject that's worth talking about in church? I mean, none of the Ten Commandments are don't litter. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul never exhorted us not to uh, pollute our lakes or to recycle. <coughs> and besides, you know, we've got the eternal fate of souls to be concerned with, so should we really be spending our time on this? Well, if you're thinking that way, you're not unusual. Uh, to be honest, I used to think that way myself. And the church, at least the church in America, actually kind of has a reputation for not caring a lot uh, about this issue. We have a little bit of a reputation for being the most skeptical of the science that suggests that we're seriously harming our environment. Um, so my goal this morning is actually very simple. Uh, my goal is to help us to see, from a biblical perspective, why this is something that we should care about. The Bible may not specifically say don't litter or uh, don't pollute, but it does say something about this issue in an indirect way, because the Bible presents us with a certain view of the world and of our relationship to it. You might call it a, a worldview. That's what I'm going to be calling it this morning. And that worldview should inspire us to care about this issue. So let me explain. For the bulk of this sermon this morning, I'm going to be identifying four characteristics of the biblical worldview, the, the view of creation and our relationship to it, and uh, why that should inspire us to care. So in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it describes God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And there are seven times in that account where God looks at what he's made and he goes, oh, that's good. And actually, the last time, the seventh time, he looks at the whole thing and he goes, that's very good. And so the first characteristic of the biblical worldview is that nature is God's creation and he loves it. If you're taking notes, this is number one. Nature is God's creation, and he loves it. It's something that he takes delight in. Dare I even say he takes pride in it. Now, if we read the last part of the creation story, we get a second critical part of the biblical worldview. This is uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 28. This is the scripture passage that I'm going to talk about the most this morning. Uh, so starting verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, <coughs> over all the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, second part of the biblical worldview has to do with humanity's role in creation. We are different. Okay? It says that we have been made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, if I say, you are the image of your dad, what do I mean? I mean, you look just like your father, right? So when it says that we are made in the image of God, what it's saying is that we are in some sense made to look like God in a way that no other creature does. Now, in what sense have we been made to look like God? Well, obviously not in a physical sense. That doesn't, doesn't really make sense. If you read just right after this, what does it say? Well, it talks about how we've been made to rule, right? And that makes sense if we're made in the image of God, because what is God? God is the ultimate ruler, right? So to be made in the image of God is to be made to be little rulers, in creation. And what do we rule over? Well, we rule over the rest of God's creation, the fish, the birds, the animals, and all the earth. So, second part of the biblical worldview is this. Human beings have been given power to rule over and subdue the rest of creation. Human beings have been given power to rule over and subdue the rest of creation. Now, when some of us hear those words, rule over, we, we take that to mean that God just wants us to do whatever we feel like to nature, right? Plunder it, kill it, cut it down, pollute it. Yeah, that's our God-given right. And the whole time, God's just like, yeah, that's what I made you to do. You go and do that. But before we give into that impulse, we have to remember the first part of the biblical worldview, Right? <laughs> Nature is God's creation, and he loves it. So surely, if God thinks that what he's made is very good, he doesn't want us to just destroy it, right? He wants us to rule the way that he rules. He wants us to rule with justice and with love. A good ruler doesn't destroy his kingdom, right? A good ruler loves his kingdom and helps it to flourish and cares for it. And surely, that's the kind of rulership that God wants us to exercise, now, what about that command to subdue the earth? What does that mean? Well, you kind of have to take my word for it based on my own study here. But I believe that in this context, what subdue means is keep it from killing you. That so nature is wild and dangerous, right? And God wants us to use our ruling ability to keep it from overwhelming us. Now, I think that before humanity fell into sin, we had much more power than we do now to rule over and subdue creation. Uh, I think that's why after Adam and Eve sin, God says that one of the consequences is now that it's gonna, now it's gonna take a lot of work and toil to get food to grow out of the ground, which implies that before ruling over the earth, subduing it was much easier, right? But now that sin has entered the picture, it's, it's much more difficult for us to exercise our ruling power and, and to do it well. That said, it is still very clear that we as human beings, upset, uh, we have this unique capacity to rule over and subdue the earth. Uh, that is an observable fact. 
right? Uh, what other creature on earth domesticates animals or builds city skylines like that or uh, practices medicine or creates technology? None that I know of, right? That's the image of God. We're, we're different. Uh, one way of putting it is that more than any other creature, we have this remarkable ability to recognize the possibilities that exist in what God has already made and then to bring those possibilities into reality. So, for example, God makes food, but then we come up with all these elaborate ways to combine food into these different recipes. Uh, we, we, we apply our, our creativity and our ruling power to something as simple as food, and we do all kinds of amazing things. Or God creates radio waves, and then we discover those, and we figure out how to harness them so that we can send messages and music you know, through, through, the, through the air. That's our ruling power, to, to bring the possibilities in God's creation into reality. And our ruling power can be this beautiful, awesome thing, right? But with the power to rule also comes the power to bring a lot of harm. That's why we care about who's in charge politically, right? Because rulers have this great power to either bless or to curse uh, their environment. So as rulers, we have power to increase the harmony in our environment or to destroy it. And I mean that literally, right? <laughs> One of the possibilities that we have in, uh, uncovered that is latent in creation is the possibility of nuclear weapons. And if we were to just you know, run wild with that, we could literally you know, destroy all life on Earth. That is the dark side of our ruling power. So underneath point two in the biblical worldview, I want us to add this little side note. With our ruling power comes power both to bless and to curse the rest of creation. With that ruling power comes power both to bless and to curse. Let me give you a contemporary example of this power that we have. So since the early 1900s, we've been producing plastic. And you know, plastic is convenient. It helps to create a lot of great products that we all love and use. Um, but there's also this dark side to plastic, which is <clears throat> it doesn't biodegrade. It actually takes hundreds of years for it to break down. So today, humanity is producing about uh, 10 tons of plastic a second. <laughs> um, and it's estimated that every year, um, 1.15 to 2.41 million tons of plastic sweep into the ocean. It makes its way to the ocean. And over time, that plastic breaks down into little pieces called microplastics. And they spread all throughout the ocean. And at this point, there's pretty much no part of the ocean that hasn't been affected by plastic. Uh, in some areas of the ocean, uh, due to ocean currents, these plastics are more concentrated. And uh, this picture shows where these currents are and the concentrations are. And the, the biggest one is number one, which is known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And it's an area about twice the size of Texas. Uh, and it's estimated to contain about 80,000 tons of plastic, which is broken up into an estimated 1.8 trillion plastic pieces. Now, how much is that? Well, 
If you took every person on Earth and they contributed 250 pieces of plastic, that's how much plastic is 1.8 trillion pieces. That's a lot. Uh, and if you want to know uh, more about this, there's a lot of information on this website called uh, theoceancleanup.com. Uh, and it goes into a lot of detail about the research that they've done. It's both fascinating and, and horrifying. <clears throat> but it gets worse. Uh, the deepest part of the ocean is known as the Mariana Trench. And it's 6.8 miles deep. So it is deeper than the Himalayas are tall. And scientists who have examined living specimens from the bottom of the Mariana Trench have found in all of them pieces of plastic in their stomachs. Uh, so the little pieces of plastic that are floating all throughout the ocean have reached even the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And so creatures eat these, these microplastics. And what's really sad about that is that toxins have a way of sticking to plastics. So creatures eat the microplastics, and then bigger creatures eat those creatures. And eventually, it works the way up the food chain to us You know, when, when we eat food, too. And so we eat the plastic, and we eat any toxins that have been attached uh, to the plastic. So this is a powerful example of our ability to rule, and with that, the ability to, I would say, curse. This is an example of cursing, right? We have spread plastic all over uh, the ocean. Okay, let's, let's identify a couple more characteristics of the biblical worldview. Number three, creation is one of the ways that God reveals himself to us. Creation is one of the ways God reveals himself to us. Psalm 19, I really love Psalm 19. And it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. You see, nature is one of God's tools for saying, I'm here. Behold my glory, behold my beauty, my creativity. You know, look at the sunset and feel it in your soul. This is not an accident. There is a creator. I'm here. You might say nature is God's artwork, and artwork points to the existence of an artist. In fact, I would say nature is so effective at producing this sense of glory and awe that throughout history, people have bowed down and worshipped nature instead of the creator, right? There's this great temptation to do that, and there are forms of that even today, of people worshiping nature. And I would say to anyone who's tempted to worship nature, I would say, hey, you're on the, the right track, but doesn't it make more sense to worship the artist than the artwork? Doesn't it make more sense to see in this beauty a sign that there is a creator behind it and to worship the creator instead? And then finally, uh, a fourth point of the biblical worldview is God sent Jesus to redeem not just human souls, but the whole creation. God sent Jesus not just to redeem human souls, but the whole creation. You know, many in the church, we have this idea 
that Jesus just came to save human souls. And uh, you remember that last week, if you were here on Easter, we talked about, you know, Jesus, it wasn't just his soul that was saved, right? It was his body, too. His body resurrected, his physical body. And Jesus is a sign of the coming resurrection for all of us who believe in him. So God isn't just interested in saving our spiritual souls, but also our physical bodies as well, because God's physical creation is good. But what I want us to recognize today is that we're supposed to take that even a step further and recognize God is not just interested in saving the human soul in the human body, but also the whole creation uh, that he's made. You know, in the beginning, God embarked on his creation project. You could call it that, his creation project, right? And his intention was to create a big, beautiful, physical world where everything was in harmony and everything was good. And his intention was to set up human beings as second in command in that creation, as as rulers in this big, beautiful world. But we human beings have abused our authority. And we all suffer for that. And all of creation suffers for that. But God is not willing to give up on his creation project. He's still set on his original intent, and he will, he will get what he wants, <laughs> a world where everything is in harmony, right, and human beings are, are exercising rulership over creation as they were always intended to do. Okay, so um, if we recognize uh, these four characteristics of the biblical worldview— and uh, I I don't know why we wouldn't, Uh, then clearly caring for the environment should be something that matters to us, right? It's something that God made and loves. It's something that he's entrusted to us, something that he speaks to the world through, right? And something that he plans on redeeming. So why wouldn't we care about treating it well? Now, I'm going to wade a little bit into controversial waters now. So hopefully this is uh, interesting, even if you disagree with me. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about the issue of global warming. I was hesitant to bring this up because I've noticed it's a very divisive topic. But I think it's really important for us to take the wisdom that we find in scripture, and then attempt to apply it to the issues of our day, the significant issues of our day. And one of the significant issues of our day and our culture today is this subject of global warming. So I'm going to try and do that. I want to take the biblical wisdom and apply it to this issue. And I have noticed that Christians have a reputation for being very skeptical about this subject. Uh, Relevant Magazine, which is a a faith-based magazine, They uh, posted an article this week titled, Stopping Climate Change as a Part of Following Jesus. Now, those of you who are familiar with Facebook know that you can react to articles, right? And there's like five or six different faces that you can choose to react to an article. And what you'll notice there is that a lot of people have chosen the ha-ha face, Um, the face that expresses uh, that you think something's funny, or in this case, I would call it the scoffing face. Uh, In fact, 42 people responded to this with the the ha-ha face, which means 42 people looked at this article and went, what fool would think this? This This is stupid, 
Now, maybe you are somebody who sees an article like that and responds that way. And you know what? If you do, I love you. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> uh, but maybe sometime this week, you can explain to me exactly why you have that reaction uh, to something like this. But if that's your response, this morning, I want to challenge you to reconsider uh, that reaction. Now, here's the situation we're in. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because you guys have probably already heard it a million times, and there's other places that you can go that are going to fill you in on more of the details. But the gist is this. Since the Industrial Revolution, we, as humanity, collectively, have been engaged in a lot of activities that have been putting a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that has a, uh, an unintentional side effect, several unintentional side effects, which I'll get to in a moment. But scientists say that since the Industrial Revolution, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by a third. So that's a substantial difference, right? And one of the unintentional side effects of having more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is that it traps heat. And so that affects weather patterns. It leads to more extreme weather, and it raises the average temperature of the Earth. And what climate scientists say is that if the average temperature of the Earth increases beyond or up to 2 degrees Celsius above what it was in pre-industrial times, that will have catastrophic effects. So 2 degrees Celsius, that's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit on average. Um, so what are these catastrophic effects? Well, coastal cities will flood because glaciers melt and the sea, sea levels rise. Um, in many places where food is grown, you won't be able to grow food there anymore because it will be too dry. Um, where many people are living now will no longer be hab habitable, so you'll have this whole group of people that are what you might call environmental refugees uh, looking for a, a, a place to live. Now, I am not a scientist. Uh, I am fallible. Uh, I know that scientists are fallible. All humans are fallible. But the question I have is this. Why would this be something to scoff at? What significant reason do we have as followers of Christ to reject this or to be especially skeptical of it or to think that it shouldn't matter? You know, in my conversations about this issue, I have heard a handful of objections several times uh, from people, and they've never been very convincing to me. So I'm going to go through them real quick. Uh, first one I hear is, God is in control, so we don't have to worry about this. Well, yeah, ultimately God is in control, but as we've already recognized this morning, one of the things that the sovereign God has done is he has given us authority to rule in this world, which means we have power to influence for good or for bad, right? People who give this reason are likely to quote a verse like Psalm 115.3, which says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And they'll say, you know, see, God is in control. He'll do what he wants with the weather. So we shouldn't worry. But you know what that same psalm says just 13 verses later? Uh, it says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. It's in the same psalm. But you won't hear the quote that. <laughs> and, and you see, what we see right there is the biblical worldview, that God in his sovereignty 
has granted human beings a measure of control and influence over the creation. Okay. And there's no reason to think that that wouldn't extend to affecting something like the weather. And as a side note, generally speaking, saying God is in, is in control is a bad way to remove ourselves from personal responsibility. You know, you would never say, oh, whoops, I left my baby lying outside in the woods, but I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to come back for a couple days because God is in control. You know, that's terrible theology, but sometimes we apply that same kind of thinking to the environment. Another reason I hear for scoffing at global warming is the science is faulty. Now, like I said, I'm not a scientist. I guess that's possible. All scientists are fallible. But from what I understand, uh, right now there's a consensus of 97% of scientists worldwide uh, who study climate. So we're talking about specifically the scientists that deal with this issue. And they agree on two things. They agree that the average temperature on Earth is rising. And they agree that human beings are playing a significant role in causing that increase. Now, could they all be wrong? Well, anything's possible. But why would we assume that they're all wrong? If the experts in a field almost unanimously agree across cultures, across nationalities, and if what they're saying is actually consistent with a biblical worldview, then why scoff? Right? Why be skeptical? Uh, another reason I hear is we should care more about people than about the environment. And this is one that resonates with me, right? Because Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say it's to love the trees. Um, but we should realize that part of loving our neighbor should include caring for the environment, right? Because severe pollution has negative effects on all of us. If global warming continues as projected, it will have catastrophic effects on people's lives, people who we are supposed to love. And even aside from the issue of global warming, I mean, all kinds of pollution lead to lower lifespans, all kinds of cancers and diseases and lung problems. So a healthy environment is a blessing for people, and a really polluted environment can be a curse. And so caring for our environment should be part of of loving our neighbors. Uh, another reason I hear is it's all liberal conspiracy. Uh, well, keep in mind this consensus that climate scientists have uh, is an international consensus, right? So you, you can't just look at this issue through the lens of American politics. The Bible doesn't break things down into you know, neatly ordered American political categories. <laughs> you know, you can be on board with certain aspects of the left view of politics and, and certain aspects of the right and reject ones on both sides. Like, as Christians, we can do that. We don't have to swallow hook, line, and sinker one side of the American political spectrum, nor, nor should we. Um, so, if this, is a, if this is a conspiracy, it is an extremely well-organized and worldwide conspiracy, which makes it very implausible, right? And it would also be an extraordinary conspiracy without a clear motive. It, in my humble opinion, okay, there is 
uh, a much clearer motivation to deny global warming. Because many, many, many people uh, make money off of the industries that put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So, I mean, that represents billions of dollars. <laughs> so there's a clear profit motive to deny global warming, but there isn't really a clear profit motive to say that it's happening. So if we're going to think conspiratorially, I think it makes a lot more sense uh, to see the conspiracy with those who reflexively deny. I mean, let's be honest, right? The Bible tells us over and over again that the love of money has incredible power to make us ignore, suppress, or deny the truth, right? <laughs> that is a theme that comes up over and over again. So I don't find this reason compelling either. And then finally, a fifth reason I hear is it's all going to burn up anyway. So why bother? Uh, a common view in the church is that God is going to destroy this world uh, before he creates a new and everlasting one where we're going to reign with him uh, forever. But even if that's true, we shouldn't conclude that we can just trash this environment in the meantime. Right? Just because God can resurrect creation in the future doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of it now. You know, by, th by that logic, you would say, well, God's going to resurrect my body in the future, so I can just do whatever I want with it right now. I can just destroy it, right? God's fine with that. Most of us wouldn't say that. We would say taking care of our bodies is, is a way of honoring God. It's something that we should do. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, God's going to be able to resurrect them later, but we should still care for them now. So if we think that, why wouldn't we apply that same kind of logic uh, also to the environment? As Christians, we're called to embody the kingdom of God in the world around us here and now. And in the kingdom of God, we will finally be doing what God originally intended for us in Genesis, right? We will be good rulers over the earth. And so that means that here and now, we should be doing what we can to be the kind of good rulers that we're going to be in God's everlasting kingdom, right? We're not supposed to wait to start to do that until later. We should be doing that now. And as a side note, if the rest of the world can see that this is a problem and the church has a reputation for not caring, that doesn't help our witness. It looks really bad. All right. I feel like I've said a lot this morning, and at the same time, I feel like I haven't said very much. I know I haven't given any practical tips for how to care for the creation. But like I said, my goal this morning has just really been to address this skepticism that exists in the church on this issue and to encourage us to realize that if we have a biblical worldview, we do have a foundation for caring about this issue. There are reasons to see it as important. And I really think that broadly speaking, in the American church, this is one issue that we need to repent on. And we need to start developing a better uh, reputation in the world on this issue, a better witness. Uh, if you are interested in being part of that change, becoming a better ruler in creation, uh, one resource you can start with is something called the Evangelical Environmental Network. Believe it or not, that does exist. Uh, it's at uh, www.creationcare.org. And uh, I was browsing that the other day. There's some good information and resources there uh, that might help to get you started. So let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of creation, uh, this beautiful world that you've made, and we thank you so much for, being the, for having the privilege of, of ruling in it and influencing it. And Lord, I pray that we would learn how to use our ruling ability for good rather than for evil. Lord, I pray that we would honor you in the way that we treat your, your artwork, and I pray that we would love our neighbors in the way that we treat our environment as well. And uh, if any of us need to uh, think differently about this issue, Lord, I pray that you just soften our hearts and um, help us to see things through your eyes, Lord. Help us to see things the way that you see them. In Jesus' name, amen.